Hi everyone, this is Ida Josefina and you're listening to Reverb by Sane. Before we get into today's episode, I've got a few lines of housekeeping. Sane is slowly getting rolled out into the real world. We're opening up our MVP to those interested in trying it out. You can go to our website at sane.fyi and book an onboarding call with myself or Tina. With this, you'll also be getting a free plan for one year. For those of you unfamiliar, I'll give a little recap on what we're building. So Sane's mission has always been to raise the collective wisdom of humanity by enabling deeper and more meaningful ways of creating and sharing knowledge. We've been doing this in a few different ways by conducting independent research, hosting this podcast and building technology tools that help us supercharge our cognitive abilities rather than deteriorating them. The tool we're building is actually right on theme with today's episode about digital gardening. Sane's thought spaces are built for collecting, creating and sharing thought processes. The interface, also known as the space, is in its essence a minimalist digital environment, a blank canvas of sorts combined with a set of features that enable anyone to create, collect and connect documents related to a given project. It functions as essentially a bank of information sources that are interlinked by the user to form a network of connected nodes. Users can publish their space and share them as unique URLs to showcase any type of knowledge. Sane is basically created for anyone who works and thinks with documents. It's made for studying, sharing research, collecting recipes, writing fiction, sharing professional profiles, showcasing creative work, creating online courses and everything in between. We've got a big backlog of new features in the pipeline as well and are actively taking in ideas from our community on how to make this product as intuitive and useful as possible. We'll be sharing more details on the soft launch as well very soon. But Let's get to today's real agenda. In this episode, I'm speaking with Maggie Appleton. Maggie is a designer anthropologist developer hybrid. She's currently the head of design at Hash, where they're developing open source interoperable systems to improve the way we structure knowledge on the web. On the side, she creates illustrated essays and visual explanations about programming and culture. She's an advocate of digital gardening and user programming and expanding our use of embodied cognition and conceptual metaphors in digital interfaces. In this episode, Maggie and I get into the weeds of digital gardening, pun intended. We talk about the history of the concept, what it means, the challenges of building digital gardens, the cozy web, the limitations we face with blogs and the web infrastructure that propels them, and whether digital gardening is complementary or one against the other with Twitter. I really hope you all enjoy this episode. I certainly enjoyed making it. As usual, let us know any thoughts, and I look forward to hearing your feedback on the product as well. Let's get to it. Here's Maggie Appleton. Okay, I'm here with Maggie Appleton. Welcome, Maggie. It's really, really nice to be talking to you today. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's get started with talking a little bit about yourself. Do you want to give um, a short history on who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, so I'll start at the beginning and kind of work backwards. Um, I currently am the head of design at a company called Hash. Uh, where we work on decision-making tools uh, and essentially trying to help people um, organize data in ways where they'll be able to run simulations on it and analyze it. Um, both individuals and small companies is kind of the, the market we, we work with. But I think I'm here talking to you today because I also write a lot online about, uh, well, user interface design. I'm, I'm a designer, obviously. Um, and I originally studied cultural anthropology, so I'm really interested in the intersection of design anthropology and I say technology sometimes, but essentially programming. I've been part of the programming and developer space for almost my entire career. 
before Hash, I worked at a company called Egghead. Um, I was the art director and lead illustrator there, where we would teach essentially a JavaScript concept. So it was an education company. Uh, and that was really where I learned so much about the web development community and the JavaScript community and got very, very interested in the culture of programming and development and accessibility to programming tools for people. Um, so those are some of the kind of the main themes I probably care about that and, yeah. and how those intersect with design. Yeah. And you have a really interesting background starting from your childhood as well, um, living in different mm -hmm. countries. No, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about just sort of how you were brought up? Sure, sure. We found we connected on that. We both moved yeah. around a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the buzzword for, for people like us is is third culture kids. So there's this idea that if you're a child that grows up in international schools, you are sort of this blend of all the cultures you take part in and, and live in. Um, and from the age of six, my, my family is, um, my mother's American and my father's British, but I grew up in London for the first six years of my life and then was moved to Hong Kong first. Um Spent a year there and then moved to Vietnam and grew up there for four years, sort of in the early 90s. Then moved to Thailand for a couple of years, then Singapore for a couple of years. Then did my uh, undergraduate degree in, in America in a, in a liberal arts school. Uh, and then all throughout my 20s, just continued to country hop, sort of because I didn't necessarily have a, a home, <laughs> uh, really. Oh, I that just was didn't the know vibe. What it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> didn't know what it was to stay put there was sort of nowhere logical to go my parents still live in Asia so I kind of went back there for a while and, and bounced around a bunch of different countries um and I've now learned so now in my 30s like just kind of settle down I'm back in the UK trying to be like a normal adult and blend in um but yes had a very nomadic I'd say uh young life <laughs> yeah and how did that make you interested in studying anthropology and you mentioned to me previously that you had like you had a family of librarian librarians as well. No, that was like a, an interesting mix of of your background that kind of bleeds into your current interests. Yes. So my mother um, is a librarian and an incredibly enthusiastic librarian. So <laughs> I think growing up, I would just sort of in her culture all the time. Um, so she even specialized in, in information technology uh, management. So sort of like how we manage our digital information how people find things, sort of how they work with Google search, how they research, like that's kind of her wheelhouse. She'll, she teaches um, high school students like research skills. Um, so I, I grew up in this house that was co absolutely covered in books. So despite moving all the time, we lugged like over 10,000 books around every single country. So they were just wall to wall oh my every, <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, the moving costs were quite uh, a lot. Yeah, I was um, just thinking. <laughs> um, but it meant that like there's so many canonical books that to me are almost like visceral childhood memories just because I knew where they lived on the shelf. So it's funny when people will reference certain books now and I'm like, oh, I knew that one was like next to the kitchen door. Um, yeah. So I was very, very privileged to have sort of been soaked in a, a very literary culture, I suppose, from a young age. Um, so when I sort of got into design and programming and found out about the world of, of personal knowledge management and people thinking about information tools and, and what we now call like tools for thought, yeah. uh, it resonates a lot with what I had heard about growing up about the problem of categorizing things or the problem yeah. of how you organize a, a collection of information. Um, so yes, I'd say my mother is, is still a large influence on me. A lot of my research themes are things she originally researched in her degrees. Um, yeah, she's a, she's a smart woman. Nice. I'm very lucky. <laughs> that's very nice. So maybe that's actually a good segue into defining some of the terms that we'll be talking about. So maybe first, just the, the general term knowledge management. Um, mm. What does that mean to you? 
Yeah, uh, that's hard. I don't even know if I have a nice patch definition for it. <laughs> um, it's funny. I suppose in our context, we think about it as I'll think about it in the context of, let's say, knowledge workers, which is what a lot of us get called nowadays. People who primarily yeah. read and write words for our job and have to sort of understand vague abstract concepts <laughs> as a large part of our jobs and possibly, you know, interpret buzzwords, come up with buzzwords explain them to one another like that's almost like the bulk of the work in lots of ways um so I think of information management as being able to take all that reading and writing we do and and make meaningful sense of it to ourselves and to each other so to tell ourselves really good stories about why this information matters and to make it accessible to us at the right times and places um there's a lot of I, I forget what it's called but there's an information chart that talks about how you have data at the bottom, then information, then knowledge, then wisdom, and we're all trying to get to wisdom. But we, we, we have nice. to work through the data and information layers to get to knowledge, to get to wisdom. Yeah. So it, knowledge management, I think, is that bit where we're trying to sort of move between maybe more like information and knowledge at, at that level in order to get to wisdom eventually. That's really interesting. Um, I, I've actually never really... Yeah, I've never pictured it in that kind of way in my head. But when you're explaining explaining it, I can really see sort of like a visual representation of this um, explanation you're giving. So what is digital gardening? That's kind of the, the theme that we're really talking about today. How did you discover this term and what does it mean? Right. So I think uh, I came across it. Was it like it was in 2018? So uh, a lot of this, I'll credit to my old, um, the CEO of my old company, uh, who is fantastic, Joel Hooks, who runs Egghead. He first came across it, I think in early 2018, and had sort of been banging on about it for like six months to everyone on the team, being like, oh, my blog's a digital garden, and you should all have digital gardens, <laughs> sending around articles and things. Uh, and so I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, started looking into it a bit. Uh, and found that it was mostly uh, a man named Mike Caulfield came up with the term uh, in 2015, or at least our current understanding of it. Sort of that phrase had been used in various ways throughout history. Um, I ended up writing a, a history of digital gardening uh, a year later um, and found that people had used it on Twitter in like the early 2000s, but to not Sorry, not Maggie, to you're getting cut, cut out. Oh, um, sorry. Is the that... last thing I heard was the, a man named Mike Caulfield. Oh, okay. So is it back now? Yes. Okay. Okay. We'll try again. Let's hope that's. Yes. <laughs> um, so digital gardening was um, invented in the way we currently understand it by a man named Mike Caulfield in 2015. Um, he is an information researcher and also part of library science and knowledge management. Uh, and he gave a talk and also wrote it up as a long essay about this idea of digital gardening. And people have used the term before um, in Throughout history, like I, I did a little bit of like historical research and wrote a piece on this, that people had used it in the early 2000s on Twitter to mean more like organizing their digital space. Um, mm -hmm. But no one had, had sort of defined it in the way Mike did. So when he defines it in 2015, he's specifically talking about the idea of changing the way we approach publishing personal knowledge to the web and the way we both consume um, knowledge on the web and the way we publish it and put it out. Right. Uh, and he argued um, quite convincingly, I think a lot of people <laughs> thought or it resonated with a lot of us, that the old model, uh, and this was, of course, very big from like Web 2.0 social media platforms throughout the early 2000s and leading up to 2015, was that we had fallen into what he calls a stream based approach. 
So linear time is the main organizing structure of, of streams. So if you think of Twitter or the Facebook um, news feed um, or the LinkedIn feed thing, everyone's feed, <laughs> right, is a reverse chronological um, list yeah. of, of the most recent things at the top. And then it, it gets buried down downwards. So it means that you are always faced with the most recent thing that happened and you're not encouraged to go looking through the past. Yeah. And looking through the past is difficult. And the only way you have to browse it is like, well, how recently did this happen? Which doesn't preference what the content's about, how important it is, you know, whether it's relevant to you. It just isn't taking into account any of those aspects of the information. It's only how recently did this happen? Right. So just to like, so the definition between or the way that digital gardening as a term was used in early Twitter referenced sort of to just individual people organizing their own thoughts and ideas and notes. But Mike Caulfield's definition then went into sort of asking the question of how people are um, building different tools that share, um, help share and, and consume information as well. So it's much more of an active approach. Would that be a correct interpretation? Uh, yes, um, I, th I think I'd say that uh, the early versions of it I found on Twitter, I don't think were genuinely like a a thing, like they weren't like a defined term, like it was just right. sort of people ad hoc kind of saying like, oh, I'm cleaning up my folder structure today, you know, a bit of digital gardening, but as like a bit of a joke, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, like when Mike Caulfield wrote the essay, I'm fairly sure he wouldn't have come across the term before, or right. like, it wasn't like something he was redefining. Um, I found very few references to it before his essay. Okay. And so what, what are some examples of digital gardening um, in the recent def sort of definition of it or idea of it? Well, um, my favorite one is, is Wikipedia is the internet's largest digital garden um, yeah. because it's not time-based. It's based on associative links, which is kind of the, the um, contrast to the stream that, that Caulfield's talked about is the garden is the, the response to the stream where you say rather than organizing by linear time we're going to organize things based on how they are related so it's an interlinked network of information uh, and another key idea of it is that you're always tending it and updating it over time so this is where the, the garden metaphor comes in that you are organizing ideas in a landscape like a garden and you are always updating and growing the garden and trying to improve it um, versus in stream-based interfaces, you publish once and you never touch it again, right? It's yeah. like you publish and you're done, um, which encourages certain ways of relating to information. It encourages certain ways of publishing information that um, aren't like, you know, inherently bad, but we can consider ways they have downsides. Uh, and gardening is just an alternate way of thinking about information that gives us a lot more opportunity to lean into things like revising our ideas, engaging in discussions and revising work, um, thinking about work in terms of growing a body of knowledge over time instead of just publishing one-off posts in, in a stream. Yeah. Um, so, so given that context, that's kind of why I think I say Wikipedia is just the, the world's biggest digital gardening project because people are always updating it. It's very interlinked. You know, you can always jump between articles uh, and it's very much about trying to curate and cultivate the best information that we have or the best stuff we know yeah. um, in a, a big group project. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's so impressive how incredibly mm -hmm. collaborative it is and how reliable it's, it's come mm -hmm. over time. 
Um, but I think the, the thing that you mentioned or you touched on briefly is like this, like presentational performance, like what are some mm. of the problems or limitations with the current sort of way people blog or, you know, the web infrastructure that propels this kind of way of behaving on the internet versus what the sort of upsides, concrete upsides in digital gardening would be when it comes to publishing ideas. Right. Um, so it's interesting, like blogs started as quite like a, a wholesome, small, cozy thing, like, you know, people writing updates to each other on the web. So yeah. web blog is means, you know, um, a log of your life. So you, you would used to post things like they were tweets, you know, you'd just sort of be like, hey, having breakfast this morning, <laughs> you know, in your blog. Um, and then it's strange that, oh, well, it's not strange. I mean, we can see how it happened. Over the course of the 2010s, the internet became a much more, um, well, there's no other word for it, capitalist place, right? Advertising came in, money came in, it became a very consumer-based medium. Um, and blogs started to become quite professional. We got this idea of, of influencers, we got the idea of sort of people being their own personal brands, the person as a small business, the person as a corporation that you are constantly trying to present yourself on the internet as a very impressive person and you're trying to present yeah. that you're very smart and, you know, people should hire you. Uh, and not to say people shouldn't do that. Obviously, that is a re the reality we live in is <laughs> you kind of get hired based on how you present yourself on the internet. Um, but it meant that blogs became professionalized, right? And people formed groups and came up with huge, enormous media conglomerate websites that made tons and tons of money of what was supposedly a blog on the surface. Um, but it means that the idea of a blog post became a very formal thing. It was like you would work on a blog post for a long time and you would get an editor and you would all copy edit it and carefully write it and construct it and then put it out and then it's done, right? You like published yeah. it on this date like a news article, like never to be touched again. <laughs> this is like your canonical idea. Um, and the problem with that is, first of all, it takes a ton of effort, right? Like we all, or everyone always talks about the guilt of that they want to write, but they have such mm -hmm. trouble doing it because they have this frame of like, well, if I write something, I have to like work on it, think about it closely, you know, publish like my final thoughts and then I can't yeah. touch it again. So this really has to be good. Yeah. Um, and then write the next good thing afterwards. So you have to always yeah. sort of like keep going. You can't just do one thing and leave it at that either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's difficult for the writer or the creator. And it hides the process from the people reading it because then all yeah. we ever see is the published finished version of everything. We never see the work in progress. We don't see the ideas that led up to that finished piece. We don't understand what they read or researched or thought about in connection to it so it sort of hides a lot of what is actually some of the very valuable stuff about seeing other people do knowledge work in public so the way gardening is trying to kind of um respond to this old way of thinking about blogging as like this formal finalized you know one and done um posting situation um is to say well what if we all put up sort of half-baked tiny ideas in small notes that are all interlinked so writing becomes much easier because you have less pressure to sort of get the final version done and make sure it's perfect and then put it out. If you're allowed to say, I'm just going to put up a few bullet points, like I have a vague idea, I might want to write something about it. I want to research a topic and, and maybe figure out what I want to write. You could just put a couple bullet points up in like a small note and be like, I don't really know what I think about this. I'm starting to research this. Here's some ideas. Yeah. Um, and then 
ideally you're doing this as part of a community or network. You have people who are doing the same stuff, who are researching the same things as you, they're interested in the same things. And you could send one of them the note and say, hey, I'm researching this. Like, have you, do you know anything about it? Have you thought about this? And you could start a dialogue with someone, right? You could stay in, you could start talking to them, seeing if they have any information about that thing. And then update your notes slowly over time until it becomes a more like fleshed out thing mm-hmm. until you formalize your ideas on it. Um, it's really just trying to find a way to allow people to think in public without thinking that they have to do anything perfectly and also like get people to realize they can and should revise their ideas. Yeah. Right. Like they should be like, Oh, I was wrong. I'm going to change what I've written here. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting because it goes into, it relates so much with other things that I really believe that people need in order to be able to think clearly and produce the best possible work they can, which is time. And mm. like, I don't know what the antonym to fast paced is like, just like, just being like being, having time and having space and being slow, like that slowness, Mm. I think really feeds creativity. And that's the, I think I would say that's the biggest thing that we're lacking um, within the modern infrastructure that we're all operating in. So what would you say is the, um, is like the personal or like what what would you say to the people listening to this podcast as a way that they could practice digital gardening? Well, there's a lot of I'll say there's a lot of buzz around the term. So like it kind of it got picked up over the last two years as sort of a good buzzword, which is which is great. Like I love when people get excited about it and and want to be part of digital gardening more. Um, there are tools for it. I think people get caught up on the tools a bit. Um, so I actually have a blog post called Digital Gardening for Non Technical Folks, and I say that in a way that like if you're not a web developer. Um, then most of the tools that are on offer kind of require you to understand how to code a little bit or how to, how yeah. the web infrastructure works. And it's, and it's honestly non-trivial. Like when I started in programming, I was so frustrated by the whole ecosystem. I still am. It's still ridiculous that like most people, it's a real struggle to get a website up and to publish regularly on it. Um, but there are good tools coming up. So there's a few that are linked up to um, apps like Obsidian, Rome Research, LogSec, there's a bunch now that allow you to sort of write notes in a, a personal database, but then publish specific ones to a p- public website. Um, although it might sound strange, one of the things I mostly recommend to people is to use Notion. Um, Notion is very easy to use. Uh, it has a wonderful interface and you can just pick specific pages and choose to make them public. And then you can yeah. nest pages inside those and then you have a website <laughs> on the live internet. Um, and there are a few services that help turn Notion um, into into websites. You can like turn a whole database into a website and they help optimize SEO and take care of like custom URLs and domains for you. Yeah. Um, so th- th- I think honestly, Notion is what I tell people to do at the moment. I'm, I think in the coming years, we are going to see way more tools that make it easier for people to build digital gardens. Um, essentially, right, like things like WordPress are, are fantastic, but they are still based on linear blogging and there aren't a lot of plugins or tools that allow you to do associative linking or the kind of things we associate with digital gardens, like backlinks um, and being able to kind of have these, these small notes rather than whole pages and posts, which are kind of like not the right framing. Um, So yeah, so there's a couple tools, but I'm I'm still waiting for there to be more. (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I hope that by the time this podcast episode comes out, Sane will actually be out and alive in beta for people to test out. So, oh, great. Uh, we're, yeah, we're really trying to sort of target this niche of, um, of, of publishing, of it being live, of it being like a URL that you can share, whether it's for, I don't know, your random research on transhumanism or your notes on your personal, you know, career journey, or whether it's actually for doing research and wanting to do that publicly. But I think it's a very interesting space, especially like specifically for what you mentioned about a lot of these apps being more within like the personal note-taking knowledge management side, and then being like, on the other hand, you know, website builders that are kind of a completely different story. So um, I'm very curious to see what um, people think about what we're trying to build sort of like directly in the middle of of doing both. Um, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about Twitter versus digital gardening, <laughs> because yeah. I think they're what do you think, complementary or one against the other? I'm sort of in the complimentary boat. Uh, one, because I, I like Twitter a lot. Uh, I've met some really fantastic people on there and formed tons of fantastic relationships. I think almost every job I've had in the past like eight years has been somehow off Twitter. <laughs> um, and there's something with digital gardens are very much like curating knowledge over time, right? In, in hopes of getting to wisdom or to canonical ideas or to, to, to understanding. But we still need sort of a place to like play and banter and like, yeah. like am I allowed to swear on this? Yes, you are. <laughs> okay. Uh, we need a place to sort of like shit talk, you know, uh, and just say silly things. And I still believe Twitter is that space, even though people always complain that people get cancelled or taken down for things they say yeah. on Twitter. Um, I think if you're in the right spaces it's you, you and you follow the right people and they follow you back and you get into good debates and arguments, everyone does it in good faith, or at least they should. Yeah, where you read someone else's tweet and you take it in the best possible light and you presume that they are not being malicious or hurtful. Um, because, yeah, we do need space to just sort of have these these casual back and forths. And at the moment, it could fit into digital gardening somehow, but the web um, infrastructure or what we have on the web at the moment doesn't really have a lot of protocols or, or tools that would allow yeah. us to have that sort of quick back and forth chat. In a, in a personal website kind of frame, you need a sort of collective place to do it. Um, so I find it complimentary. I don't know that Twitter is like the 10 year solution to, to this problem, but for now it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Well, how do these ideas or what you're talking about now relate with the terms campfires, personal mm -hmm. wikis? Well, personal wikis, I think we've kind of touched on, but then mm -hmm. the cozy web, which I think is very right. interesting in terms of thinking about Twitter versus digital gardens versus something else. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, I love these ideas of like campfires and, and cozy web stuff. Um, so I, I drew a little like timeline related to digital gardening, where uh, on one side, you sort of have, um, I forget what I called it, <laughs> but like very formalized ways of, of communicating with other humans, which I put on one end, like publishing a book, right? That's very like, you are taking the mainstream approach to publishing information, you are working on it for years you're not you know making a yep. beautiful cover and and it's the most formal uh and also sort of like not authoritarian but uh you know traditionalist or authority um medium and then on the other side of the spectrum we have um the cozy web and, and streams and like kind of i think i call them chaotic streams and it's things like slack whatsapp twitter 
it's the places where we're just doing quick back and forth messages, especially ones in private, like like WhatsApp and Slack groups, where you're not even needing to censor yourself that much. Or you're yeah. just playing with ideas and it's very, very informal. And the digital gardening is somewhere in the middle of these two. It's trying to find a happy middle ground between the public formal presentation of information and the very loose, just like playing around with ideas. Um, and so this idea of the cozy web is that um, the internet has become like a, a dark, scary place. It's like filled with like advertisers and and, and data surveillance. Um, and it's just sort of everyone like marketing themselves. And it's just sort of like a, a place we've all wanted to kind of retreat from in recent years. Mm-hmm. And the cozy web is this idea of us all going underground into like cozier groups like the Slacks and the WhatsApps and retreating from public internet life because we're afraid of people misinterpreting us, being cancelled, right? Like of not being taken in appropriate context. Like people don't know who we are, where we come from, so they can't interpret our words correctly. Yeah. Right? Like Twitter, you just have a username and often like a bio that doesn't tell you that much. And you can't like understand Husband, someone's... father of four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And you like can't figure out, you know, where they're coming from versus obviously in real life, we have way more physical and visual cues to be like, okay, I get where this person is maybe, you know, from, from a nation, like what, how they relate to me in society. I have more clues about like how to take their words versus on the internet, which don't have that. Um, so the cozy web is yes, the idea of, of retreating into smaller private groups um, where we have more context for the people we're talking to and then are freer mm-hmm. to express ideas and have debates and engage yeah. in real conversations. Which is very much needed because basically the you know, what the internet did it was create complete context and content collapse by mm. making us consume, especially, you know, especially the likes of Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, mm. where we read, you know, weird things about our family pet and about the war <laughs> in Ukraine within the same place, within the same environment, within the same sort of headspace that we're in. So um, it's, I think, very necessary to sort of think about how to rebuild context and content online, but at the same time, make sure that we have safe spaces to do that publicly as well, because isn't that kind of the point of the internet to, to be able to exchange ideas? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this could be, I, I sometimes think about like what infrastructure would we need to do this sort of thing, where to have a bit of like a private side to something like a digital garden where only some people have access. Or yeah. I don't know if this would maybe could exist in some some tools like Sane or, or other ones that are trying to help people build digital gardens online. Where what we want out of the cozy web, right, is that little bit of intimacy with people where we know who's reading it and we just want to test yeah. ideas. And there are tons of times where I have a draft of something I'm working on and it's still very, very rough bullet points and I'm almost ready to publish it. But I kind of want to send it to one person first to kind of get their feedback. And I'll put it on my website, but on a hidden URL and then send them the URL. Um, and, I, and I'm and i trying to think of ways of how I could do this that isn't like kind of that, although that's a good workaround. But this sort of mm-hmm. like semi, semi-public for some people um, yeah. is one way to do it. Um, yeah, I think there's a space for that somewhere in digital gardening where we, we want to share things that aren't fully public, but are semi-public. Yeah. I always thought that was very like I always thought about like why subscribe to things on YouTube for example like I never Mm. I never subscribe to anything on YouTube I just go on YouTube and I start maybe because I'm not a very good YouTube user but I always thought that subscribing to a channel in YouTube was like unnecessary and a bit weird being Mm. like if I you know like why would I um but I think in this case like a subscription to someone would Mm. be actually a good way because if I'm subscribed to 
you know, you uh, on whatever platform it is that you are publishing in, then I am telling you that I am like very interested in your work. Like I'm not just a passerby, but I have decided to like commit some of my like, I don't know, internet capital to give to this Mm -hmm. or attention like maybe attention to give to you and therefore Mm -hmm. you can consider me as being like truly interested and like maybe a good group to test ideas on but some people might be just like passing by and having a look at your work and being like this is cool but you know they're not willing to make that commitment of being you know like giving active uh daily Mm -hmm. you know attention or whatever you know monthly attention to your work so maybe that could actually be an interesting feature or something to think about is like subscribing to certain spaces to get sort of active feedback back both ways like i know people obviously do that now with newsletters right email newsletters are the current medium for that or uh, patreons like i'm um and a really wonderful Patreon um, with Andy Matuszczuk is, is again, one of these people who is big into digital gardening, has a yeah. wonderful public collection of notes that sort of everyone sort of fawns over. I think very appropriately, they're great, but he's sort of this yeah. canonical example. Um, but he has a Patreon and, it, and it's sort of also a skin in the game thing, right? You pay a tiny bit of money each month to help support him as an independent researcher, but you get his kind of unfiltered early essays, you know, access to, to new things. Um, so that we, I can see we do have some mediums for it, but I'm still always bothered by this. It's being facilitated by platforms like Patreon or Substack in the case of newsletters, which isn't mm-hmm. inherently bad, but I keep trying to be like, well, how could we just put this on the open web? You know, how could we put this on the independent web so that we're not always relying on third party private companies to, to give us these tools? Yeah. It's uh, it's super difficult. And like the development mm-hmm. of saying, we've had so many conversations on thinking about how, like, how could you actually make this public? Like, how could you just make right. this like, but it's, I mean, if anyone has any ideas <laughs> listening, <laughs> that is an extremely difficult um, from an yeah. engineering perspective, like do tell. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think like still for me, it's very very, very difficult to wrap my mind around to understand like how it could actually function without any third party facilitators, because mm. also someone needs to take the responsibility of making sure that things are improving and listening to users and listen, you know, and like developing things. And, and I find the idea of web three, very, um, complex at times to understand like, mm. what is web three? What is the ultimate goal? Because as mm. far as I see it, there's a lot of problems in every direction that you're looking at. It's like a nice idea and something I think is a, like a very important discussion, something to strive towards. But realis- mm. like realistically, practically speaking, um, yet yet to be determined, obviously, for everyone. But um, yeah, I, I think it's... Um, I'm very, I'm very excited to kind of see how these things develop and what kind of projects get put out that are truly sort of community-driven or, or public. Yeah. Because um, the ethos of a lot of the Web three projects um, is appealing, and and like despite yeah. all the like you know silly buzzwords that like float around it and all the crypto stuff, <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it is like it's just trying to get back to this ethos of and yeah, it, it could be a private um, third party company providing tools, but it's more wanting wanting ones that are not necessarily driven by tons of VC funding because then you get into that trap of they have to yeah. you know, do the ten x return, and that yeah. ends up being well, we'll just we'll just sell all the user's data to like, you know, insurance companies out the back door because how else will we pay for this? Um, exactly. Yeah, it's just a, a needing a cultural change where it could definitely be private companies, but ones that just take a very different approach to to funding and sustainability and responsibility to their users. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. I think a lot of things will change, and I think um, Twitter is, in that sense, a very interesting place to be following mm -hmm. along because you're just getting like a constant stream of everyone's predictions and hypotheses for the next couple of years, <laughs> <Yeah>. which is <laughs> a bit overwhelming yeah. and wild at times, but also interesting. Um, is there anything else you'd like to mention on here, talk about um, that you think we haven't covered, or do you think we're pretty on track? I think we did fairly well. I'm trying to think of anything I didn't touch on. I mean, people always end up asking about like, what's the, the future of digital gardening stuff? Although I feel like we touched on it quite well because most of my concern around that is around tooling. Um, yeah. So it's just getting people to build platforms that enable, um, yeah, non-programmers, non-technical people, people who aren't as savvy in web development to do it. Because at the moment, it's very much like lots and lots and lots of web developers have digital gardens. They are all digital gardening about javascript arrays and like rust and like all, all these technical topics which is completely yeah. fine but it's sort of like kind of want like insurance agents and like nurses and like you know third grade teachers to also be part of this uh, and yeah. to do that we're going to need very very different tools um available to people um <laughs> uh, it's it's a hard problem but you know it's like i think in a decade we're probably going to get somewhere with it <laughs> Yeah, let's see. Um, well, thank you so much, Maggie. This has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I think my favorite topic in the world. So thanks so much for the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is wonderful. <laughs>